We are uh, finishing our summer psalm series, and I think we've been in the psalms long enough that I don't remember if that's the official title, but we've been uh, finishing our, our uh, stroll through those psalms and looking at various psalms in, in the Bible. And so uh, this is the last psalm series, and um, Troy is in the hills of Montana uh, with Dan, Sam Benedetto, and, uh, and crew. And so continue to pray for him, for his safety, because we love him, and also because if he does not return, I'll be starting our series next Sunday in Hebrews, which is, which is a privilege, and, and I love the book of Hebrews, but, um, but uh, we, we want Troy home. And uh, have you gotten, heard anything? I saw some smoke signals in the distance, but uh, he is literally off the grid in a lot of ways. And so um, we are, uh, I, I know he is eating it up, though, because... Troy's crazy, but anyway, um, all right, so let's, uh, let's get into our uh, psalm this morning. There's a lot of ground to cover, and so let's, uh, let's start. We're going to be looking at two questions this morning. Our first question this morning is, how do we know God fully knows us? I mean, do you fully know yourself? You know, and the answer is no. I mean, you won't necessarily have some sort of spasmic, you know, react. You may, but you may, you know, and go, where did that come from or something like that? But occasionally you'll go, you know, you'll put something in your mouth and you'll say, I actually like kale. Or, uh, you know, or you'll, or you'll kind of shift your desires or your dreams and it will, you'll kind of surprise yourself sometimes. Like, I didn't know this about myself. And, and if anyone knows you best, it ought to be you. And yet we don't really, in, in, in some capacity, in some way, shape, or form, know ourselves. So how, how do we know God fully knows us? Well, the first answer we have is he is omniscient, okay? He is omniscient. Omniscient basically is a, you know, $5 word that basically just means God knows everything or God is all-knowing. Omni is all, shunt is knowing, so God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. How do we know this? Well, the first of all, God freely and comprehensively searches us. God freely and comprehensively searches us. Verse 1, he says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, have you ever gone on a, vac a vacation, let's say, and, and when you return from the vacation, one of the descriptors you used to tell others when they said, how was your vacation? You basically said, well, it was great, but we, we didn't get to see or do all the things there, were, there was to see or do. How many of y'all have ever been in that situation? You know, if you've ever gone to Disney, this is your story, because Disney is overstimulation city. You know, and, and so you go, you know, and you say, well, we had a great time. This was great. This was excellent. The food was great, that sort of thing. But we really didn't get to see everything we wanted to see. You know, and when we go to search those places out, we realize, or, or we knew already, that, that you know, normally something, something cuts off. We either run out of time or we run out of what? Money. That's right. We either, we either run out of time or we run out of money or sometimes both. So, you know, to, to see everything we wanted to see. So we'll notice what David says in verse 1. You know, again, he says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. All that a person is would definitely, I think, be, you know, even the simpletons or, you know, or the people who, you know, uh, are just kind of stare off at the wall, you know, aimlessly or something like that. 
every person, I believe, is tremendously more complicated than even Disney World. Yet when God comes to search out David, or anyone for that matter, God never walks away kind of saying, boy, I wish I had more time. Or if I only had a little more cash in a couple of more days. No, God searches David, and he knows David. But not only in verse 1 uh, do we have this statement of, of God searching and knowing, David also uses this statement as kind of a, a, a launching point to describe exactly how he knows God freely and comprehensively searches us. He not only says, oh Lord, you, you know me, you, you have searched me out, but he also says this as kind of a launching point to explain how God does that. So in point number two, God knows all activity. God knows the rising and the resting of all creation. You know, and that pretty much come, you know, kind of sums up the daily activity of every person on the planet. We're either, you know, in, in a lot of ways, we're either rising up to take something on or we're sitting down after having taken something on. Notice here that David uses the word when. And this means God's knowledge of human activity is also comprehensive, just like his searching of our hearts is. Because whenever we sit down or rise up, past, present, or future, God knows. It's fairly easy for us to know when we sit down and rise up in the present. I'm standing up right now. I, this afternoon, will probably take a nap, so I will lay down this afternoon. You know, we, we, that's kind of a future thing, but, but in the present, we kind of know what's going on. And unfortunately, the older you get, it's a little more difficult to remember when you sat down and rose up in the past, right? Kind of, well, when did I, you know, did I sleep last night? You know, something like that, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I hit the big 5-0 a couple of weeks ago, and so I, I have a right to tell that joke. But anyway, uh, and I know some of you are like, you have no idea, sir. But anyway... Um, but, but it is absolutely impossible to know when you will rise up and sit down in the future. Like I just said, you may make plans, you know, I'm going to take a nap this afternoon or something like that, but really, can you know? And the answer is no. It is absolutely impossible to know when you will rise up and sit down in the future. Only God knows such things. And just to affirm this truth, verse 3 goes on to say, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He knows whether you're going to be out of town or in town. He knows where you, all of your ways, all of your pathways and those types of things, past, present, and future. But not only does God know all activity, God knows all thoughts and intentions. David says in verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. The word thoughts in this verse apply to everything that happens in the mind. It not only includes a person's thoughts, but it also includes their intentions and their purposes. As Psalm 94.11 says, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. He says that because he's eternal, but he also says that because the Lord knows our thoughts. Hebrews 4 verses 12 through 13 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning 
In other words, this, this living Word of God, and the reason it's living is because God's involved, this living Word of God is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. All thoughts and intentions of the heart are laid bare before God. As it says in Psalm 44, 21, it says, He, God, knows the secrets of the hearts. But not only that, the fourth thing is, God knows all words. Verse 4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The Lord knows what is coming out of our mouths before it comes out, which is frightening sometimes. And by using the word altogether, there's, there's not a word that slips by. Every word is wholly known. Even if you trip on your words like I often do sometimes, the Lord knows the gibberish that just came out of your mouth before it was even on your tongue, which is an amazing thing. In writing about God's omniscience, A.W. Tozer, the great preacher in I think the 1900s, 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, he wrote this, God has never learned from anyone. God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into the mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity? He would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the Most High God, maker of heaven and earth. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no things better than any other things, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed, he never wonders about anything, nor, except when drawing men out of their own good, does he speak information or ask questions. As I say to folks who are going through hard times, I say, God never wrings his hands, ever. And so God is omniscient. That's one way we know he knows us fully. The second reason he knows us fully is he is omnipresent. Omnipresent means God is everywhere. How do we know this? Well, number one is this. God hems humanity in. God hems humanity in. H-E-M-S. That's a word you, you can just say all kinds of ways. And H-I-M-S, H, you know, that sort of thing. So God hems humanity in. Look at verse 5. He says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Here we have this sort of war language that's going on here to illustrate the inescapability of God. We, we cannot get away from him. The word him literally means to lay, lay siege to something. 
And so if we were, if we were at war, let's say, with Crosspoint, I use this illustration with students a lot, we would lose, but if we were at war, because they have so many more people, but anyway, uh, uh, but we're smarter, so maybe we'll win. But anyway, uh, so let's say we're at war with Crosspoint. And let's say God has graciously, like in the Old Testament, put the fear of Rocky in the heart of Crosspoint. And so they lock their doors and they stay in their building and they're like, you know, there's no way they're going to kill us, that sort of thing. Although they, you know, they outnumber us five to one or something like that. But, but we decide, let's go. So we decide to put siege ramps and, and siege works against Crosspoint. So we build these rock ramps and walls and towers and everything like that. And we are basically going to say, we'll keep them in there until they starve to death or until they surrender because they're starving or something like that. That's kind of the whole idea of a siege. Well, here's God who puts his siege against us. We cannot get away from him. That's why he says he is behind and before. And just to seal the deal, he said his hand is upon us. Now, have you ever had a gecko in your house? Anyone? I'm from Oklahoma. I've been away from, I've been here about 20 years, a little more, give or take, and, and so I'm kind of used to walking down a sidewalk and seeing 50 lizards running back and forth and that sort of thing. That's not Oklahoma, and, and so that always surprises people that come and visit us, and they're like, you know, does anything ever die here, and, and that sort of thing. But, but if you've ever had a gecko in your house, I don't know what you do, you know, to kind of get it out. You may use the cat. I don't know, but, uh, but it, you know. Bad joke. But anyway, if you, if you use your hand and you, you don't want to necessarily kill the poor little thing, you know, you kind of chase it around and you kind of get your hand into kind of a cup formation and you try to cover the gecko. You know, your, your hand is on the gecko and that gecko basically is just kind of squiggling around in your hand and it feels weird and, you know, you try to slowly close your hand and then put the thing outside, but you can kind of feel it wiggling around in there because it has no other place to go, but it's still trying to find places to go. David saying, God's hand is upon me. Like a gecko in a trap in a sense, but, but he's saying, you know, that there's no escape from this, that, that God's hand is on me. But the second thing is this, there's no place to get away from God. You said, well, you already said that. Well, it's better illustrated us in verses 7 through 10. You know, they pretty much speak for themselves, but David basically starts to name these extremities or these extremes of all creation as places to maybe, if possibly, get away from God. So he first deals with kind of the vertical. So letter number A, he says, if I go as high as possible, he is there. He says in verse 7 and 8, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Now he's not probably speaking of literal heaven, God's abode, that sort of thing. Heaven generally sometimes means the sky. And so he's basically saying, if I go to the stars, if I go up there, he's there. But letter number B, if I go as low as possible, he is there. So verse 8, if I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol, you are there. Sheol basically is the abode of the dead. It's the place where you go. And, and, and you know, uh, you've heard people sometimes say, you know, if you love Jesus, you're going to go up. But if you don't, you're going to go down kind of thing. And, and we sometimes image that. You know, it could be that, but it's usually, you know, we image up and down and that sort of thing. And that's what he's saying. If I go as low as possible, he is there. 
And now he deals with the horizontal. Letter number C, if I go to the ends of the earth, he is there. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And we know the, the difference of depth perception when you're kind of standing and looking off into the horizon, maybe we're land, and it's just all land, and you kind of, you see trees and maybe hills, not mountains necessarily here, but maybe you're, you're in some place where there are mountains, and you, you kind of just kind of see an end point, and you can kind of make the conclusion in your mind that there's, a, there's an end to my view, that, that you could, you know, make it to that forest, or maybe, you know, with enough effort and enough time, you can make it to that mountain and that sort of thing. You know, there's just kind of an end point to your view, but when you're on the beach and you're looking out at the gulf, it's kind of a different story. There's really kind of no end. The sky meets the water, and that's, that's just about it. It looks a, a, a lot of ways like it could go on forever. So by saying, if I, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, David is saying, if I go as far as I possibly can, horizontally, God is still there. As I have told the students, before, God is in person handling whatever's going on with Pluto right now, and he's in this room too. Okay, so God is in person handling what's going on with Pluto right now, and he's here as well. God is omnipresent. The third thing, he is omnipotent, which means God is all-powerful. And really, when we talk about God's omnipotency, we're, we're talking about his sovereignty. So the first thing we see in verses 11 and 12 are, number one is this, God is sovereign over natural law. This is so important. God is sovereign over natural law. Several years ago, um, with our church in Fort Walton, I went on a mission trip to Haiti. And we went to a very small village in northern Haiti up in the mountains called Zoranje. Okay, uh, we had a member of our church who happened to be a missionary to that area and had been doing a lot of ministry there. And so Chuck would take us to uh, Haiti two or three times a year. And so we went to this little, little, little village called Zoranje. And at night, being in the mountains and being in the middle of nowhere, you could always see kind of a ton of stars. That's one of the fun things about country living is at night you look up and, and you're like, where did all those things come from? You know, there's just a lot of stars. And we had a friend with us on this trip, that uh, uh, military guy who, who brought this pretty high-tech night vision scope, you know, that, that could like send out a laser, you know, so that you could send a missile and blow the smithereens out of things and that sort of thing. But uh, this thing was, was a night vision scope. I don't know if, if he was legally supposed to bring this, but it was pretty cool. Um, so, so he gave it to me, handed it to me, he said, look up. And so I put it in my eye, looked up, and, and though there were hundreds and hundreds of stars without having that thing, you look with that night scope and there were thousands of stars in the sky. It was just like, whoa. And he says, look around, you know, and I'm kind of looking around. And, and there's, a, there's a donkey that's like five feet from me that, you know, um, some of y'all know this, most of y'all don't maybe, but I was born with little or no sense of smell. So I didn't know there's a donkey anywhere near me. And then all of a sudden they're, you know, right there in front of me. 
You know, just kind of looking around because if you're in absolute darkness where there's not a lot of electricity and not a lot of city lights and that sort of thing, it's kind of hard to look around and see things. Darkness is a, a very limiting thing to us. Well, how well does God do with this natural law, this idea that it's really dark at night and you can't see? Look at verse 11. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. The one limiting thing really about that night scope is, when you look at it, everything's green. You know, everything's kind of a light fluorescent green that you're looking around and that sort of thing. Folks, when God walks around in absolute darkness, everything's color. Everything's color. Day is, night is like day to him. He, he shows his sovereignty over natural law here because he can kind of stroll through the darkest of, of, of nights as if he's walking around in the brightest of days. Natural law would never overpower his omnipotence. The second thing is this, life to God is a sowing project. Life to God is a sowing project. The, the conception and development of a baby in the womb is awesome. I get up and, 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 and when I think about it, which is usually daily, sometimes many times a day, and I just think about that little grandbaby of mine developing in my, something like that. We, we, we could do that because, you know, uh, that wouldn't be very helpful to say that in every way and just kind of throw out that generic answer, but it would be a correct answer to the question. There are so many reasons why being fully known by God is a blessing, that to be so is to be blessed in every way. I mean, to, to, be, to, to know that God fully knows you and to start thinking about the ramifications of that and seeing where Scripture applies to that and looking at that, it will take a lifetime, but you will discover time after time after time again, blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. So we're going to look at three. Because pastors can't do anything outside of one, two, three. Number one is this. Being fully known by God means you found the reason for living. Being fully known by God means you found the reason for living. In many ways, actually, the reason for living found you. After meditating on God's power in meticulously creating him in his mother's womb, David gets swept up in the greatness and the goodness of God. And so he explodes in verses 17 and 18. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts. In other words, God's thoughts are not precious because David has some unique perspective that nobody else has. No, God's thoughts are precious, period. God's thoughts towards you are precious. And David is acknowledging that fact. And I could just open the floor now. I could just say, tell me, folks in the balcony, tell me why God's thoughts are precious to you. Now, I'm not asking for an answer to that necessarily, but, you know, we could say, tell, and we could be here all day. I had a husband who was lost as a goose and God miraculously saved him. I, I had a child who was lost and, and, and God is working in them today. I am, I, you know, I, I had cancer and I don't. I, you know, I this, I that, you know, everything like that. I studied hard and I prayed for a good grade and I got an A. 
You know, we all have those stories. We all can share how God's thoughts, God's activity towards us is a very precious thing. Then he goes on to say, oh God, how vast is the sum of them? If I could count them, they are more than the sand. This again is not an exaggeration, and here's why. Because David kind of finishes the statement with, I awake and I am still with you. How many known sins did you commit this weekend? How many known sins did you commit this morning? How many, how many known sins did you commit in the past week? How many, how many known sins have you committed in your lifetime? If one sin is enough for condemnation, then we receive a daily wheelbarrow full of sandy, precious mercies. We do. We, we receive a wheelbarrow full of sandy, precious memories. How, what do you mean by sandy, precious memories? He says, he says, God's thoughts towards me are so many, they're, they're, they outnumber the sand. And we're like, really? Because I've been to the beach. I mean, it takes me forever to get like 10 grains off of my leg. You know, there's a lot of sand out there. Really? And the answer is yes, Really? If we were honest with ourselves and we had the memory of a computer and that sort of thing, we would have a book to the moon listing all of our transgressions against God. And yet, here's David who says, all of these thoughts are precious to me, and then he wraps, wraps it up with saying, I awake and I am still with you. Wow. Do you not understand that when you have a fight with your spouse this afternoon, Or when you are rebellious against your mom and dad for telling you something that you didn't want to hear. Or if you're tooling down the road and there's a billboard and you shouldn't have looked at the, uh, the picture on the billboard or whatever. I mean, we could go down the laundry list of, of reasons everyone in this room ought to feel guilty because we are guilty. We do this. And yet we wake up tomorrow. And if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will wake up tomorrow and you will be with him. You will be with him. That is a fascinating thought. That is an amazing truth. That, that this God who could condemn us almost every breath that flows out of our mouths pours mercy on us on a daily basis, time after time after time after time, so that when we wake up every day, we're his. The second thing to look at and why this is a blessing is this. Being fully known by God is only to be feared by those who love their sin. I like it. This wasn't planned, but I like when Ken in his prayers asked the Lord to teach us to hate our sin. And the reason we pray such prayers is because we know that, that sin, at least coming into our view, looks absolutely delightful. Promises, 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 of course, that are deceptive, but it looks absolutely delicious. But being fully known by God should only be a thing that puts fear into the heart of those who love their sin. David all of a sudden kind of does the shift and he gets what is known as imprecatory. 
That's a fun word. He gets imprecatory. Imprecatory basically is a big word that just means David calls on God to destroy the wicked. So you look at different psalms, they're called the imprecatory psalms, and basically God just says, you know, David just says, God, knock the teeth out of them. In, in one psalm specifically, he does say that. So, so David says this in verses 19 through 22. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak evil, or excuse me, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Does it bother you that you are fully known by God? Do you, do you have a problem with, with God being God? Knowing all things, being wherever you are, and, and being all-powerful. When you were on the internet, God was there. Does that bother you? When, when you were hanging out with your friends, God was there. Does that make you angry? When you are at work or at home or wherever you might be pursuing your hobbies or something like that, God is there in all of his power and in all of his knowing you. Does that gall you? When you read verses 17 and 18 and your response is, no thank you, God, I'm, I am fine where I am, just, just let me do my thing and quit meddling in my business. Instead of what David says in those verses, you know, about delighting in the fact that when he wakes up in the morning, he's with God. You say, I don't want to be with God. But you love your sin then. You love your sin. And you should have great fear rather than indifference or rebellion when it comes to the omnis of God. Third and final reason. Being fully known by God means there's hope for everyone. David's request in verses 23 and 24 would not be possible if God, through the omnis, did not fully know us. David says in verses 23 and 24, he says, search, he asks this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We'll finish with this. If, if God were not omniscient, he might answer David, okay, David, I will. I'll, I'll search you out, but, but I can't guarantee I'll find everything there is to find. What a horrible thought. God, get this stuff out of me. If, there, if there's something in me that is grievous, I want to know. I want it gone. But because God is omniscient, his answer to David is, I already know all that there is to know about your heart, David. I know your thoughts and I know your intentions. And that's a good thing because that's what you want him to do. If God were omnipresent, he might answer David, sure, David, can I pencil you in for uh, six months from now? I mean, there's this thing in Rome that I really need to get to right now. Then I have to go to China and handle something with the, with, with the Chinese, and, and then I have to kind of redirect this asteroid or there's going to be a real mess. I think I can meet with you for an hour in about six months. How about it, David? 
But since he's omnipresent, he can immediately answer not only with a yes, but with action. And he can do that for us as well. And if God were not omnipotent, he might answer David, do you really want me to do that, David? I mean, David, are you serious? Do you really want me to search and know your hearts? Because if I start to expose that, that little pet sin you've got in the corner of your heart, then you might scream bloody murder and switch your request, and then my hands are tied. Your, your will is just something I can't overcome, David. And so if I, you know, I'm, I'm omniscient, so I know it's there. I'm omnipresent, so I see it all the time, but I'm not omnipotent, David. So, so if, I, if I say, okay, David, you really want to go here? You, you want me to take the gloves off? Here we go. You have been checking out your next-door neighbor who's not your wife. Oh, no, God, get out, get out, God, get out. Okay, I, you know, I tried, but you know, I can't overcome your will because I'm not all-powerful. Now, and, and, and we kind of chuckle at that maybe or something like that, but that's exactly how we would react. God, God, search me and know me and expose all the sins that I'm willing to get rid of. What about this one? Ah. And God says, no, no, ah. <laughs> let's deal with this right now. Since he is an omnipotent God, he can overcome any sin, any foolish desire, any stubbornness in our part, any strong-willed person. And here's the beauty of it. He can deal with all of those things, and he can set us free. He can set us free. As David says in verse 24, he is not only able to find any grievous way in us, but he is also able to lead us in the way everlasting. How's that possible? Do you know what the way everlasting is? It's the way for perfect people. How many of us have a shot at that? We don't. And so he, by his power, sends his son, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore, in that righteousness that has been placed on our shoulders, we can join God in walking down the way everlasting. As it says in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the righteous man, his thoughts. I don't want God to search me. I have these thoughts that I don't, I don't want him to see or I don't want to get rid of. I want to keep thinking this way. I want to keep believing this way. I want to keep entertaining myself this way. No, let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he, here it is, will abundantly pardon. There's where you see, I think at its greatest point, the omnipotence of God, because a holy God has compassion on sinners and abundantly pardons.
That is a powerful, powerful God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this series that has been such a blessing to our church. Lord, it's been wonderful to hear different people comment on Troy's sermons and, and my messages, Lord, and, and how the series has been such a blessing to them. And, and, and Lord, I thank you that how it's been such a blessing to, I know, Troy and myself as well as we've prepared the Word and immersed ourselves in this. And, and so I pray, oh God, that you will continue, oh Lord, to, to bless us today. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that loves their sin, God, maybe they don't know you as Lord and Savior, and they are the, the description of, the, of, of what David says there, the, the enemies of God, those who take your name in vain, those who are opposed to you, oh God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning, help them to also understand that the final message of this message and of any message in your word is, there is hope for you, that you are able to turn from your sin, you're able to forsake your way, and you're able to forsake your wickedness and your thoughts, and you are able to turn to God who is there, ready, willing, and able to offer you abundant mercy. I pray that if there's someone here this morning who is in that situation, Lord, I pray that they would repent of their sin and trust in you as Savior and Lord. Help them, Father, to find hope, and in finding hope, find the reason for living. Lord, if there are believers here who are struggling, maybe when we mentioned a pet sin in the corner of their heart, maybe that's them. I pray, oh God, that you would just by your Holy Spirit bring conviction and help them, Father, to confess that sin before you. Help us all to know, Lord, that when it's all said and done, it is a blessing beyond blessing to be fully known by you. And so I pray for those who are wrestling with that, not wanting to be fully known, trying to keep a hold of some type of rebellion against you. Oh God, may this morning be the salvation morning for them. May they place themselves completely in your hands, knowing that you already know, but rejoicing in the fact that you know. Oh Lord, may we, like David, have the courage to stand before a holy God and say, search me and know me. If there is any grievous way in me, oh God, I pray that you would expose it remove it and help us, Father, to be people who desire every day not only to be with you, but to walk with you in the way everlasting. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.